The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Inside Out, The Inner Revolution with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, discover an eco-friendly resort in a gorgeous location where you can make a difference. Let Earl Cahill inspire you to become more daring about your life. Can you enjoy an eco-friendly resort in Central America, surf, do yoga, and at the same time help a local community realize its dreams, including schools and clean water? Plus, know that employees are paid a fair wage and are afforded scholarship opportunities. In other words, be on a vacation in a developing nation without feeling guilty. Yeah, without feeling guilty. Did you hear that? (laughs) That'd be nice. (laughs) In fact, feel great about it. Meet yeah. Earl Cahill, co-owner Jim of... said he never felt guilty for being at the, on vacation <laughs> at there, but I did. Anyway, I do. I do know. Now I have retroactive yeah. guilt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear it. So now, today is your chance to meet Earl Cahill, co-owner of El Coco Loco in northern Nicaragua, linked with their nonprofit Waves of Hope. Earl and his friends were students in Canada when they felt inspired by a vision of working and living in a community where they could make a real difference, as well as afford their family and guests a unique opportunity. Hear their story and share in their challenges. Learn about their resort and discover the many opportunities it offers for relaxation, service, and or just plain fun. Plus, be inspired. Many dream of doing something outside the box, but few do it. Let Earl inspire you to take your next step. And now, here's Beth from the Inside Out. Hi there. Welcome. Well, first of all, we should acknowledge that this is our very first show on the Variety Channel. Hey, Variety! And so we're very excited to be here, and we're also grateful for the Seventh Wave Channel that's been such a great support to us, and you can still find us there for a while while we're transitioning. And the podcast is always in the same place. The host page is in the same place. Anyway, well, we have a lot to cover today. First, James is going to do a quick version of the news because I want to give you just a little bit of background. Now, some of you are already going to put your finger on click to turn us off, but I want to give you just a little bit of history of the U.S. relationship to Nicaragua. Now, I know that Earl is not an American. He is a Canadian. He's a North American. But uh, most of our listeners are in the U.S., and it would be really good to see what some of the history is of our relationship with Nicaragua and what an incredible inner revolution it represents for Earl and his friends to be doing what they're doing. So, okay, but first, here's James with the news. Yes, this is the news of the inner revolution. First, we have an Associated Press news item from July 16th, 2015. Obama visits prison to call for a fairer justice system. Last week, President Barack Obama came to the medium security El Reno Federal Correctional Institution near Oklahoma City to press his case that the nation needs to reconsider the way crime is controlled and prisoners are rehabilitated. Obama was the first sitting president to visit a federal prison. 
The president said there must be a distinction between young people doing stupid things and violent criminals. These are young people who made mistakes that aren't that different than the mistakes I made, Obama said. Among the changes Obama is seeking is a reduction or outright elimination of severe mandatory minimum sentences for nonviolent offenders. Harsh prison sentences, particularly for nonviolent drug crimes, are to blame for doubling the prison population in the past two decades. See, now that's oneness. I know I'm interrupting you, James, but sure. that's oneness. I mean, President Obama is saying, you know, th- uh, this could be me because I did stupid things too. So it's not, it's really breaking down some of that them, us, oppositional inner, you know, energy, which is so much a part of the inner revolution, which is about oneness, becoming accountable for the impact of our behavior, and really becoming mutually supportive. So take it away, James. Okay, next we have an item from one of our listeners, Tracy, from uh, Upworthy, a related story. Throwing people in jail didn't help, so this police chief found a better way to help addicts recover. Now, this is a story about a police chief in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Gloucester. Gloucester, Gloucester, yeah. For those who are not Easterners. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> started a program to give people who struggle with addiction a judgment-free place to go for help. So he set up a program whereby people could come and surrender their drugs and paraphernalia and not get arrested. Instead, they are fast-tracked to a rehab center that will help the person. And they are provided an angel who will help them along uh, every step of the way, even hold their hand if need be. And this has been a fantastic success. It shows power of unconditional support to a person with addiction instead of uh, throwing them in a jail cell. Yeah, more oneness, huh? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Again, And then another item we have uh, from the Christian Science Monitor in Los Angeles, they have a national model for dealing with the mentally ill by the police, where in L.A., the police have formed a partnership with the mental health department. And so they have a team of officer clinicians who... Uh, divert people who are arrested for who have mental illness to go directly into a mental health clinic and environment instead of sitting in a jail. And it's had so, tremendous implications for recovery and also reducing the costs of one's recovery. Yes. So this is really a tremendous inner revolution taking place in our nation around how we treat prisoners, how we deal with mental illness, how we deal with addiction. We're beginning to get away again from that them-us model where we're the good people, they're the bad people, and if we can just lock them up, our problems will go away. (laughs) You know, but, but when we are the problem, you know, how many of us can we lock up? So um, anyway, but this is an extremely important uh, transformation that's taking place, and we're going to be covering this as we go along. But now James has other different yes. kinds of stories, too. Yes. Now, elsewhere in the world, in Nigeria, where a same-sex relationship is punishable by up to 14 years in prison, a gay activist works to bring about change. This came from NPR, July the 19th. Uh, under the title, Why My Mom Didn't Say I Love You for 11 Years. In Nigeria, polls show that 90% of Nigerians believe homosexuality is unnatural. And of course, as I mentioned, being in a same-sex relationship is a crime. A man named Adebisi Alimi was the first person to come out as gay on Nigerian television in 2004. After that, his parents didn't speak to him for almost 10 years. His father had tried to pressure him into an arranged marriage with a woman. When he refused, his father said he never wanted to speak to him again and cut him out of his life. Then, more recently, 
The father called after having a near-death experience and apologized for misunderstanding and hating him for something that his father knew that his son just couldn't help. Finally, earlier this year, on his 40th birthday, his mother sent him a text that said, I love you. This was the first time she'd said this to him in 11 years. You know, this is such a touching story. I'm sorry, James. It's such a touching story. Uh, You know, talk about an inner revolution. I mean, here's a society where the people are so overwhelmingly prejudiced against gay people, and it's... It takes courage. You know, I was just saying that the three, uh, you know, three practices of the inner revolution are becoming oneness, you know, really feeling how we're one, becoming accountable for the impact of our behavior on ourselves, one another, and the earth. And the third one is to become mutually supportive. But we need to develop, in order to be inner revolutions, into revolutionaries, we need to develop some habits and uh, qualities of personalities. And one of them is courage. Look at this guy. Yeah. You know, who's standing up. I mean, it takes people like that who get knocked down, knocked down, knocked down. And I also want to tell you, I'm particularly touched by this story because I was engaged in an interracial relationship back in the 1960s. Okay, I'm dating myself. And my parents did not talk to me for eight years. So right. I had so much compassion for this guy and what it took to be able to stand up to all of that. Yes. So there's been a lot of progress in Nigeria. Now 30% of Nigerians say they believe that LGBT people should have access to health care, housing, and education, which is uh, coming away from 96% of all people opposing relationships between same-sex couples. So yeah. they've come a long way here already, but they have more to go. Now, here's a, yeah, probably so. And also from uh, another listener, Chris, in Afghanistan, a gender revolution hits the streets two wheels at a time. This is from NPR, June the 9th this year. In the 1990s, the Taliban imposed many restrictions on women's rights. Women couldn't go to school, walk on the streets alone, or speak publicly. The militant group was ousted from parts of the country in 2001, yet many people still believe that women belong inside the house. Fatima Haidari, now 18, decided to challenge that thinking. After studying in the U.S. last spring, Hadari returned to Kabul and, with the help of Girls Up, created a bike riding club just for girls. She felt it was really important for a woman to be able to get somewhere without a male's help. They ride together around Kabul every week on Friday. On one ride, a man tried to stop one of her friends and made her fall from her bike. There was nobody to protect the girls or even call the person out. But the girls have kept riding nonetheless. Says Hadari, it's really new for our society to see women outside their house because we usually think women are supposed to be home to raise the children or take care of the husband. We're trying to push women to have equal presence in society, and biking is just part of it. Next, she wants to learn how to drive. <laughs> I love that story, too. Don't you? <laughs> I, do I too. mean, look at this. The inner revolution is happening all over the planet. And it's changes in attitudes. And the, again, what a beautiful example of courage. And as some of you will know, in two weeks, we're actually interviewing Dr. Sakina Yakubi, who opened 80 schools for women and children, underground schools, during the time that the Taliban was uh, in charge of Afghanistan. And of course, they're not completely out of Afghanistan now. And uh, they faced uh, threats of death. And uh, she's going to be on our show in two weeks, and she's going to be telling us about what that struggle was like and what they're still facing today. But, uh, I mean, you know, we hear so much negative news, guys, 
so much bad news. And to see people beginning to stand up and fighting and getting support is the thing that makes my heart sing and is what our Inside Out the Inner Revolution show is all about and talking to these fabulous people who are doing fabulous things. So thank you so much for the news this week, James. Yes, thank you. Okay, so now, talking, going from the fabulous to the not-so-fabulous, I want to give you a little bit of background of the U.S. Uh, connection to Nicaragua. Now, Nicaragua, as most of you know, is a Central American nation. It's a small Central American nation, and we have a kind of a pretty sordid history uh, with a lot of Central America. When I say we, again, I mean uh, U.S., uh, the U.S. government, and... Um, in fact, it started way back in 1909. Well, you know, Nicaragua, like all the uh, South American countries, were colonized by the Spanish and by the uh, or by the Portuguese. So, uh, Nicaragua was a Spanish colony, and um, what happened, of course, was that the U.S. came down on the side of colonialism. Unfortunately, that's uh, only when it was our freedom that was at stake did we actually oppose colonialism. It's not good. In fact, the U.S. invaded Nicaragua in 1909, which is not very unusual, I have to say, for the U.S. in relation to, to Central America. Uh, because, you know, we didn't like what they were doing. We didn't like the government. We didn't, so we just felt like we had a right to go in there. And then, you know, one of the hideous pieces of uh, U.S.-Nicaraguan history is that the Somoza family was installed with, uh, by the U.S. Uh, government in 1927. And that was a 43- year military dictatorship that we installed. I, I mean, I say we because I'm an American. This is my country. This is my government. And uh, so, you know, it shouldn't be surprising that there's a little resentment against um, the Americans uh, in, in many parts of the world. When, uh, you know, because the people were very narrow-minded. They were looking about, you know, what is American business interest? And most people didn't really know what, they, what the government was doing. But um, then there was the Sandinistas who took power in July of 1979. Um, and what happened was kind of an unfortunate kind of relationship because... Carter, Jimmy Carter was president at the time, and he tried to work with the new government for a while. However, the Carter administration, who had provided $60 million in aid to Nicaragua under the Sandinistas, he suspended that aid because when they got evidence of a Nicaraguan shipment of arms to El Salvador and rebels. Well, El Salvador was another tragedy in Central America. There was also a rebellion in there. And so, you know, there was a movement and uh, we decided that we didn't like that. And so <laughs> uh, at that time, something really, really bad happened, which was Reagan came in and um, see, during the time that the Sandinistas uh, were in power, various rebel groups against the Sandinistas were a kind of populist, socialist kind of uh, group. Various rebel groups, collectively known as the Contras, were formed uh, to oppose the new government. And the Reagan administration authorized the CIA to help the Contras. So the uh, the Sandinistas were trying to bring some kind of reform to Nicaragua. The Contras were contrary. 
Reagan and uh, the American government was supporting them. The CIA was in. And, I mean, it was really bad. The, the Contras engaged in a systematic campaign of terror against the rural Nicaraguan population to disrupt the social reform projects of the Sandinistas. There was a lot of brutality. And uh, this was all being, uh, you know, funded by us. And you know what was really horrible? Some of you will remember this, that uh, when the U.S. Uh, Congress decided that we should no longer be supporting the Contras, the Reagan administration did that kind of swap the Iran arms and the Contra Iran, you know, uh, the they covertly sold arms to Iran and channeled the proceeds to the Contras. And this was against the U.S. Congress. And the International Court of Justice finally asked in 1984 that the U.S. needed to make reparations to the Republic of Nicaragua for all the injuries caused. And uh, I'm sorry to say that during the war between the Contras and the Sandinistas, 30,000 people were killed. So this is the background. Very, I know it was very brief, but, you know, it just gives you a little bit of the flavor. And now we have Earl Cahill and his friends, these Canadians who uh, probably didn't even know this history, or maybe they did. And they had this feeling like, oh, my God, we're all one world, and look at this poverty, and how can we help people? And they come into this land with a completely different attitude, with a real inner revolutionary attitude of feeling one with the people and caring and being accountable. And their story is incredible. And I'm so proud and happy to have them on, to have Earl representing them on. And he not only does they have this this great tourist attraction, but they have this wonderful uh, nonprofit corporation. So Earl didn't come on to talk about politics, but see, I'm allowed. But I would like to just very briefly introduce you. I have a hi to Earl because we're going to be going to commercial break soon. But uh, I'd like to introduce you to our wonderful guest, Earl Cahill. Hi, Earl. Hi, Beth. Thank you very much. Um, There's definitely, there's a little bit of negative history surrounding Nicaragua and that's very unfortunate, but um, I, I'm excited to be here too, and, and I hope to bring a little bit of a brighter, brighter scenario to, to the new Nicaragua down here. You certainly are, and you're bringing a different face to uh, what it means to be, you know, a North American, and uh, a whole different energy and a real interrevolutionary energy. So we are thrilled to have you. We're going to go to commercial break, but everybody stick around because now you're not going to have to listen to me. You're going to have to listen to Earl. And also in the wings, we have a caller already, but I've, we've got her on hold, who was at your resort. In fact, she's the one who told us about you, and we're going to bring her on in a, uh, a little bit later in our show. So right now, we're going to go to commercial break, and when we come back, Earl Cahill is going to tell us all about El Coco Loco and Waves of Hope. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Revolutionize your life and your world with a new attitude and a new way of being. Learn how at www.theinterrevolution.org. 
At Beth's website, you will find effective tools, processes, teachings, and more to help you become the person you want to be and co-create the world you want to live in. Sign up for Beth's newsletter and get a free PDF of her comprehensive book, Living with Reality, a manual for living with real answers and proven tools. Book a private 15-minute consultation with Beth that will astound you with its depth and transformative power. Learn about Beth's other books, YouTube channel, School of Intuitive Counseling, music, upcoming workshops, trainings, and remarkable community, theinnerrevolution.org, which offers all kinds of help, including low-fee counseling and free support. The Inner Revolution requires us to heal our hearts and awaken our minds. Find both at Beth's website, theinnerrevolution.org. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You're tuned in to Inside Out, The End of Revolution with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To share your questions and comments, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to Inside Out, The Inner Revolution. Hi, welcome back. So this is Beth and Earl and James. And during the break, James said, you know, I think people should know that Nicaragua is not this place where all this warfare is going on anymore. And that is a perfect segue to bring on Earl to talk about the Nicaragua he's living in and what he's experiencing today. So take it away, Earl. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks, Beth. I, um, I think I think it's safe to say that you know we are experiencing a bit of a, a new Nicaragua here. Um, there are still many struggles um, in many Central American countries, um, and the government of Nicaragua, although perhaps stable, you know there are many concerns that continue. However, I, I think you know in the darkest days they were a little bit before us, and, and you know which is why I know my parents. And I think my my friends, Ben and Jamie, their parents, they were the ones who were most concerned about us because they experienced, you know, all the the Contras and the revolution and a lot of that, you know, on the news much more common and frequently. And so, you know, even as many of our guests who arrive at Coco Loco, often the first thing they say is, oh, you know, everyone was so concerned about me coming here and, you know, it has a, excuse me, a very dangerous reputation and, and a scattered history and often negative that I think it's safe to say today there, there's a much more positive, um, you know, much more positive vibe in Nicaragua and tourism is doing a lot of country. Um, like I said, the government is somewhat stable, although there, they, you know, there are many concerns still, but I think it's, it is a much more positive Nicaragua these days. You know, one of the things that I loved in your various websites, uh, uh, the Coco Loco, ElCocoLoco.com, right, and WavesOfHope.org. Um, right. And there on your bio, in our, on our host page is a bio of Earl, and it's got both of those uh, uh, websites in them. It, you know, it's the friendliness and the gentleness of the people just comes through. I mean, oh, my God, you know. Earl and his friends are building schools and the kids are just like alive and they're so excited about school. <laughs> Not always like us, right? They're so excited by these opportunities. And you can feel the, the beautiful people uh, who live there. 
That, that's so correct, Beth. That, that's a, you know, the main reason why we chose Nicaragua as the place where we wanted to set up our business and where we wanted to live. You know, the, the main idea was that we were escaping you know, the traditional nine to five life and wanted to be a little more laid back and wanted to be in a, in a different place. And, and Nicaragua is very warm and welcoming. The people are wonderful. Yeah, I had the same experience, Earl, when I traveled to Haiti, even under Duvalier, which was a horrible dictatorship, probably before your time also. I'm dating myself for sure, because I was alive and active during all of these times. Uh, And, you know, and you would go there and the people, I mean, they were like so impoverished. Everyone was so gentle, was so nice was so courteous. You would meet people on the road as everyone greeted everyone. And I, I was like, oh, my God, I really could feel that again, despite what these people have lived through. I, I don't know how, <laughs> how people can stay, you know, in that warmth. But they have a sense of love and community that sometimes we have trouble with. It, it's very true. There's, you know, there's a long list of, of struggles that the Nicaraguan people have gone through, you know, between natural disasters um, and, and the politics. Um, and yet they are. They're warm and welcoming. Uh, there's a story, a, a woman who does wonderful things down here in our, our community, too. Um, she tells a story of a man who gave his last bag of rice, you know, after a terrible hurricane and he had very little. But, you know, their generosity he continues. That is so beautiful. Now, Earl, give us a little bit of a background on how you came to end up in Nicaragua. How did three, I mean, were you like three normal guys? You know what I mean? Like beer drinking or whatever guys do. (laughs) We were were three very normal beer drinking guys. Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, we, We met at university in Ottawa in Canada. Um, and then reunited in Guatemala where Ben, one of our, one of the three of us, he was volunteering and Jamie and I had never really had a whole lot of, uh, of volunteering experience and development work. Um, we were young, we were still not far from graduating university and we met up with Ben in Guatemala and that, for me as well as my first experience of, you know, the developing world. And so we, we initially, we learned about the center that Ben was volunteering at and got an idea of how that worked. Um, and then we basically just traveled together for, for five or six months. Um, we spent every dollar we had and, and tried to make, you know, keep the trip going as long as we could. And it was somewhere along the way that, you know, I'm sure many groups of travelers or people have is this crazy idea of, you know, well, why don't we, why don't we try and, you know, buy some land or open up a business, you know, open up a surf shop or something that will allow us to stay and allow us to live this life that we're enjoying so much. And um, we, although we went to many countries, every country in Central America, it was Nicaragua that, that really struck us. Um, we, we felt safe was the biggest thing. The people were wonderful and welcoming. And, and it also, it's beautiful. You know, the landscape here is wonderful and it really suited what we thought we wanted to do in terms of a, a business. Um, and then as we got into the development of our business plan, right away the idea of, you know, somewhat of a community development plan um, began to grow as well. And we didn't really know exactly what direction that would take. You know, we were still new to Nicaragua, but we knew, you know, we wanted to be a part of a community and and offer a little bit of help wherever we could. Now, see, that's fascinating because it sounds like you started out with me. You know, gee, I like this lifestyle. How can I continue? 
and then uh, somehow it translated into we. <laughs> How can I give back? How can I become part of? Uh, you know, you just felt the oneness, and and it just, it seems like it it was just a natural. It wasn't an ideological thing. It didn't come from your head. It just somehow naturally emerged. Is that is that right? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, it, it's it was clear. You know, throughout our travels, that there was a lot of hardship. You know, that you know, the bottom line is a lot of people do live in poverty here and struggle day to day to you know to provide food for their families and keep a roof over their head and. We were all, you know, we were all normal, normal kids growing up and normal guys. And but at the same time, we were very fortunate, just coming from where we came from. And it just seemed, you know, somewhat of a responsibility that if we were going to open a business down here and and be half successful, it seemed a responsibility to share some of that with our immediate community and try and you know do what we could. We weren't sure at, at first what that would be, but we wanted, you know, we did feel it was a responsibility. Well, you know, uh, Earl, lots of companies in North America go into communities and are considered uh, are considered successful, and yet they have only one interest, which is how to make profit for their shareholders, or mm-hmm. to how to make profit for the business. You know, the same need that you're talking about to care for people and to care about people is as true here as it is in Central America. Yet, we people don't come to that consciousness. I mean, this is a really different way of doing business. I mean, it's a different way of being a capitalist, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think we, I don't think we ever realized either that the nonprofit, that Waves of Hope would become as big as it has and would, you know, we hoped that the business would help ways of hope and bringing in guests and having, you know, if we made some profits to share, we hope that would help the nonprofit, but we didn't realize how much the nonprofit would actually help the business and, and help, help us grow. Well, tell me about that. Tell us about that, uh, what the nonprofit has been doing and how it has helped you grow. And later on, a little bit later, we're going to ask you to describe some of the fabulous vacation opportunities because I don't want to lose that too. <laughs> I want people to know that this is a beautiful place. It's a great opportunity. Um, but let's start with that because that last statement was so provocative. Sure. So, well, so when, we, when we got started, you know, we were, we were very new, as I've mentioned, and all of us, our Spanish was very rough. And so even just the idea of basic communication was a struggle at times. And but we knew we didn't want, want to press anything on the community. We didn't want to come into this community and think that we knew what that community needed. It was really key for us to start by learning from them and listening to them and introduce ourselves gradually and let them know our plans and that we would like to help them if we could. And so through some time and through introductions, we. we kind of put together, you know, our, our three kind of main focuses, which were based on the community's communication to us, which were education, healthcare, and, and just basic infrastructure. Um, education has clearly become our, our strongest, um, our strongest fight. And, you know, a lot of kids in, in these communities, a lot of parents had never gone to school. And so then a lot of kids were not going to school. Uh, they didn't have the resources. They didn't have uh, the buildings in many situations. Um, so that was an area where the community spoke to us and said, you know, we want the best for our kids. And we want to see them get an education and perhaps, you know, do a little better than us if, if 
that could happen. And so we started with, with basic ideas of helping our local elementary school. And our first, we did a big fundraiser in Toronto with mostly friends and family and, and raised, I think it was close to $12,000. And it was a, a wonderful night. We had a wonderful help. And we put that all towards helping our elementary school in our community. We did a backpack drive where we provided kids with a backpack full of supplies that would last them for a full year and did a little work on the school to, to make it a place of pride and make it a place where kids want to go and parents want to send their kids. And like all of our projects, we did this with the community. It wasn't just us. We expected parents to come out and help and contribute ideas and contribute their work and their hours. And, and that's how they, they come to appreciate that work in that building and it becomes that place of pride and they're happy to go, go to a graduation and see their kids up on a stage. Yeah. And so from there, you know, we, we just continued at little elementary schools in our greater community um, and started doing a number of other small, you know, healthcare initiatives, providing some medicines to the clinics, which are always short. Um, Basic, you know, basic infrastructure, fixing a road here and there, fixing a bridge where we could. Um, and slowly we just grew and grew. And I think it's safe to say our biggest accomplishment was building a high school from the ground up. Um, we're currently in our second full year of classes with over 130 kids who prior to that didn't have a real high school to go to. There was a, a high school, several hours, you know, several buses and more than hour away that not many kids would go to where now numbers are, are fantastic and it's a very exciting place to be and you've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars um with with lots of wonderful help yes um with with the high school in particular when with the community came to us and, and asked us you know if we if we could do such a project and that seemed way above us at the time you know we were bringing in maybe twenty thousand dollars a year and, and dividing that as as quickly or as, as best we could, this high school from the ground up seemed to be a tall mountain for us. And we were fortunate. We partnered with uh, a couple of other organizations, one of them being Surf for Life, which is a San Francisco-based group that brings down service trips, that fundraises, and they contributed a lot towards the high school and helped us in, in you know, where we're at now. We've raised probably over $250,000 in, in about seven years since we got going. And you know what else is fantastic? So many, because uh, I was watching your videos, uh, you have volunteers that are out there doing grunt labor. And, uh, and the, you, know, you don't have power tools. You know, and you're doing all of this with, you know, uh, people who hard actually work. want to give their hard work. Hard work. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't think about surfers as having organizations that are looking to help. You know what I mean? This is such a mind-blowing, <laughs> paradigm-blowing kind of uh, uh, you know, idea of what you guys are doing, but well, how did that help the business? Um, so it is, it, it like you say, I mean, perhaps you're surprised, but there are a number of wonderful surfers out there, and and there are many organizations who are connected to both surfers and other travelers who who want to make a difference and seek out places to go that do have a connection to the community. Um, and, and so really for us, what's benefited us is that there are those people who want to come and stay at our resort and also enjoy getting involved with the community, meeting the community. Um, and, and that is, you know, continues. We have a lot of school groups 
Um, my high school has even come down and helped out in, when we were building the high school. Um, and, you know, we, we couldn't be happier to bring in groups and introduce them to the Nicaraguan people and our community. You know, we're far from being a closed-in space where we advise people, oh, don't go outside there. You know, we're not sure <laughs> who everybody is. And it's quite the opposite. We, we encourage people to, to move, move around in our community and get to know the people. That is such a revolutionary act in and of itself, Earl, because I know that in the Caribbean, for instance, uh, you know, the tourist places uh, were all like completely isolated from the rest of society so that people didn't have to see what was going on and didn't have to actually interact with people. <laughs> and your, your paradigm is just right. the opposite. And this is so exciting because you're collapsing a lot of the dualities, work and fun. Or work and vacation, right? Or the nonprofit and the for-profit, because they're all working synergistically. People who want to involve themselves in the nonprofit come and they stay in your resort. Other people who just want to come to the resort can and have a wonderful vacation, but uh, and but still get to be a part of this thriving, uh, pulsing, energetic, uh, you know, evolu- evolving. A whole that's right. happening. Even those who don't necessarily come on a service-related trip, they still, you know, we have we have 25 staff members right now who are all, you know, basically from our immediate area. And so, whether you're involved in a project, a community project or not, we still do our best to to introduce the Nicaraguan culture and our community to our guests. I think that's fantastic. And by the way, uh, just to mention, they also have yoga retreats. So there's a real mind, body, spirit, healing, energy, great food, I understand. <sighs> I wish We're I could fortunate. We, we have a wonderful team. And, and, you know, we all have a very fortunate lifestyle at the moment. And, you know, back to, you know, when we, when we came here, that, that was the idea. We were coming to live here. And, and so, you know, we just wanted to be a part of this community. And, and, you know, and that's what came naturally to us is being involved. Well, there again is that collapsing of the separation uh, mentality, the collapsing of the dualities. It's all oneness. It's like you live there. You know, it's not like, oh, okay, this guy makes a factory in Detroit but lives in some suburb. You know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. like you have to live with the people who, who work for you. You, live, you breathe the same air that they do. <laughs> you know, and all of that makes such a difference. Well, we're going to be going to commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to have Anne come on. And she's going to tell us about her wonderful trip uh, and what she experienced. And then I really want you to tell us some of the stories about what it was really like for you as a, uh, as a Canadian to adjust to living in a third world nation, <laughs> which is a very different way to live. So It has its moments, yes. I, I, I'm sure, sure it does. <laughs> <laughs> and what your family said and all of that stuff. So stick around. We have lots more on Inside Out, The Inner Revolution. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
Revolutionize your life and your world with a new attitude and a new way of being. Learn how at www.theinnerrevolution.org. At Beth's website, you will find effective tools, processes, teachings, and more to help you become the person you want to be and co-create the world you want to live in. Sign up for Beth's newsletter and get a free PDF of her comprehensive book, Living with Reality, a manual for living with real answers and proven tools. Book a private 15-minute consultation with Beth that will astound you with its depth and transformative power. Learn about Beth's other books, YouTube channel, School of Intuitive Counseling, music, upcoming workshops, trainings, and remarkable community, theinnerrevolution.org, which offers all kinds of help, including low-fee counseling and free support. The Inner Revolution requires us to heal our hearts and awaken our minds. Find both at Beth's website, theinnerrevolution.org. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're tuned in to Inside Out, The End of Revolution, with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To share your questions and comments, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Four seven two five seven eight eight. Now back to Inside Out, the Inner Revolution. Hi, welcome back to Inside Out, the Inner Revolution. I am Beth Green, and we are talking to Earl Cahill, one of the co-owners of El Coco Loco, and uh, one of the found co-founders of Waves of Hope, which is uh, their nonprofit. And we have waiting in the wings Anne, uh, who was there. This summer, and told us about Earl and said, "You got to talk to this guy. He's an interrevolutionary." So, uh, Anne, welcome to Inside Out. Thank you. So you hear you me okay? To, mm-hmm. Yes, we hear you great. Okay. Um, great. We, you're here in the U in the U.S. Do which help? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, Anne, um, you wanted to call in and talk about what it was like for you being there, and we would love to hear an unexpurgated account, mm-hmm. truth, 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 about what it was like to be at El Coco Loco. Do you have to be loco to go to El Coco Loco? <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely belong. Um, thank you. Yes, I, I, I love the experience. There was a few things that came to mind that I'd love to share about the way it impacted me, and um, first of all, I was really attracted to the idea of the eco-resort. I'd never heard of that, really. didn't know what to exactly to expect. But uh, once I was there, well, and I thought, I realized as I was there, you know, there's no hot water in the showers, outdoor showers, and <laughs> their toilets are waterless. They have this, like, really awesome, innovative system um, that's completely sanitary. Um, but does not use the resources like we do here. And I've, I realized as I was there, it slowly dawned on me, I have this ongoing guilt or and shame um, as a person in the developed world, I think. And I always hear about all the resources that we use and how we're like 5% of the world's population. We use 25% of the resources or <clears throat> probably more than that. And, you know, it's just like always there in the background. And um, I didn't realize until I was there for a little while, how, you know, I was realizing I, I was living in a way different than that and how that feeling was 
not there as much anymore and that I was so, I felt so much more connected to nature and instead of feeling like I'm just taking and taking and taking of resources that I just felt more like in community with nature. So I really appreciated that experience and I didn't miss any of that. I didn't miss the hot water. I didn't miss the flushing. (laughs) I mean, I was only there a week, but (laughs) <laughs> um, it's, I was, you know, I know Earl will probably share more about me was like to be there all the time, but I really enjoyed that experience and I would highly, highly recommend it. Um, but there were a couple of other, other ways that it, it inspired me and impacted me. The other way was part of what they do. I was there with surf with Amigas who rent out the resort and they send in their information, their travel information. They say, if you have any room left in your bags, bring things for the local community. You know, we're connected with ways of hope. And that inspired me. Last year, I went to Central America, and I had, like, two bags, and, like, half of them were with shoes and clothes (laughs) and random crap that I never used, and everyone laughed at me for. Um, And this year, I planned on bringing less anyway, but when they said, bring bring what you can, I, I, I was inspired to send a message out to people I know and everyone in my school because I'm a teacher, and people... We're putting things in my box at school, like toothbrushes and books and, you know, things that they need for their, their, their classrooms. And I cleaned out my classroom and I had, so I was like weighed down this time bringing things to <laughs> on my trip, but I, they weren't for me. And it was a wonderful feeling, um, you know, to be weighed down, but um, with things to offer instead of things to use. Way so. down and uplifted at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like, I mean, there was like a weight limit, so I had, I had to take all those books out and put them in my satchel and the carry-on and then like <laughs> waved down. I was like drooping over and I was just like, I loved it though, you know? <laughs> it was like really fun actually um, to do that. And so that, I loved that experience. And the way that, that Earl, the way you're offering people that, you know, that awareness, you're really teaching people Um you know, and building that awareness, that accountability, and that, that mutual, mutually supportive experience just by, like, bringing that experience to people. So I really loved that and was impacted by it, and I think that inspires people. And then the third way was that right after Nicaragua, I went on to Costa Rica, where I know some friends that I met last year. And, you know, because of your model, I had, like, a new perspective and um, a new eye. And as I was talking to my friends there, I started to see how different their experiences. Some of my friends who are trying to improve their lives, and some of them have small businesses, like they're teaching surf lessons and things. And um, I was so inspired by your story that I, I really started asking them, like, hey, what would you guys need? You know, if you wanted to improve your business, like, what could, you know, is there anything I could do? And what would you want? And, you know, we talked about the, like, some technology they could use that would help them to offer new service, like for their surf lessons, like being able to videotape their customers and offer that, you know, that service. And so I um, invested in them and was able to help them with that technology and, and talk to them about that. And I told them, you know, I don't want anything, but next time you see someone that needs some help, you know, one of your community members, like maybe you can invest in them if this helped you they were so appreciative and I really felt good about being able to offer a different kind of perspective. Like you were saying, historically, 
how our, how the U.S., you know, the relationship we've had in Central America has been so much more of a taking um, experience, and I really wanted to be someone who was offering something and in a mutually supportive way. So I, I really want to thank you for inspiring me in that way, and I hope that inspires other people to think about how they can improve any community where they find themselves. Thank you. Thank you so it. much, Anne. That's so nice. <laughs> You know, the, and that was so beautiful and so genuine. And I, I think it brings out something really important, which is we think we need all these external things, but that's because we don't have the internal things that we really need. Oh, I'm not pretending that uh, we don't. I mean, we just went through six and a half weeks without air conditioning, and it was like 100, 105. <laughs> We're old. I, it was tough, I got to tell you, you know, I couldn't mm-hmm. wait to get air conditioning. But, um, I, I, but to be honest, so there, you know, I'm not pretending that I don't need anything. But the, there, the, um, so much of our consciousness, it goes to uh, acquiring things that we actually don't need because we feel so empty inside. And what you're talking about is, how you didn't need hot water. Of course, you were in Nicaragua, but <laughs> you weren't in, you know, New York City in the winter. But, um, uh, but that there are so many things we think we need, but we don't. And if we weren't hurting inside and feeling empty and alienated from one another, that we would realize that. And I think that's so much of what I heard from what you were just sharing, Anne, was that you were being filled up with a different mm-hmm sense of yourself that you mm. got to be a person who was giving and caring and loving and you loved yourself as that person and that mm. fulfilled you to such a degree that it inspired you to continue being that person even when you were in a different situation mm. yeah I agree that is the feeling so that was incredibly important. And, you know, when we ask uh, you, Earl, about, um, you know, very quickly, because, uh, I don't know, time always runs away, uh, <laughs> about what it was like for you and your friends and their, your families to, to come down there and the adjustments that you had to make. But it was so wonderful to hear Anne's story first because, you know, what we give up in order to be the people that we deep inside of ourselves really need to be and want to be and love being, what we're giving up is small compared to what we're gaining in self-respect and self-love and just a feeling of safety in the world. That's so true, Beth. And, and you know, what, what really, for me personally, you know, listening to Anne, you know, of course, that makes me feel very happy. And, and you know, as you know, that's what I, we want from our guests is we want to share that exact experience. We want to, to connect them. And hopefully when they go home, you know, they have a, a little bit of a greater appreciation for, for how lucky so many of us are. Um, and and that's is most evident um, in many of the service trips that we have had come down, you know, schools and university groups mainly, um, you know, they come down and they're very motivated and, and, you know, they're coming to, whether it's build a high school or help with a clean water project, they're very motivated, believing they're going to, you know, make a big difference. And it's very true, they do. But in many situations, um, 
the impact that the community has on those individuals is what is what lasts and and what is the result of their week or however long they stay and you know they come up to us at the end and, and say you know I was so expecting to have to move mountains down here and make such a big difference but really it is in myself that I have seen and experienced this difference and realize how lucky we are and, and how, how spoiled we are and yet you come down and you see these people who don't have a whole lot but they're extremely happy and sharing and warm and welcoming and, and you know I, I don't think any of us when we had this dream you know expected to have perhaps such a profound impact on our guests but um, it, it is very rewarding, you know, I, I'm sure Ben and Jamie would agree with me that that is what, what we're most proud of and, you know, to share this experience and see people come down and, and really realize how, how lucky we are and, and perhaps try and share some of that with, with the people here. Well, it sounds to me, uh, it looks like we're not going to be able to hear any of your war stories, but that's okay, because <laughs> I want to give you like 30 seconds to sort of say a little bit, anything you want to say about your resort, but uh, it seems to me that maybe even in reframing it is to realize how unhappy we are, how little we have, although we have so much, sure, and how much... We're not, always, we're not always as happy as, right. as maybe we're, we appear. We're not always getting what we need. <laughs> Right. We may be getting what we want, but we're not getting what we need. Earl, very quickly, what would you like to say uh, to summarize uh, an invitation to people to come? Um, well, we, we like to think of Cocoloco uh, as a bit of a do-what-you-feel festival. You know, we're, we're open to yoga groups, surf groups, you know, groups that want to come down and do you know, something different. Um, and we, we do our best to to make it a fun and exciting time. Um, and that goes without saying, that includes the community and, and experiencing Nicaragua, which perhaps for a long time, people have been a little bit shy and afraid to experience Nicaragua, but we're, we're more than happy to, to introduce Nicaragua to our guests. And in a new way. You introduce Nicaragua to your guests in a new way, and you introduce North Americans in Nicaragua in a new way. James, we are like running out of time. Would you please tell us something about next week's show, and then we can say goodbye to our lovely guest. Very good. Next week, what's the story behind Radical Grace, a film about the nuns versus the hierarchy? Meet Rebecca Parrish and find out. When you buck a big hierarchy like the Catholic Church, you can expect a fight, but perhaps the Vatican didn't expect the fight back. Meet Rebecca Parrish, director of the inspiring film Radical Grace, which documents the struggle between U.S. nuns and the Catholic hierarchy. The film focuses on three remarkable nuns, including Simone Campbell, who was interviewed on this show on June 30th. And prior to Pope Francis, the Vatican launched an inquisition into American nuns and their social justice agenda, and it put, them a, and it put a male bishop in charge of reforming the nuns. The nuns and their allies pushed back. Ultimately, Pope Francis called off the investigation and thanked the sisters for their dedication. This story transcends religion and women's rights. It's part of the inner revolution against mindless conformity and for the needs of real people. We're thrilled to introduce you to director Rebecca Parrish, and you'll discover the story behind this film, Rebecca's personal story, and how making the film changed her. And now, a final word. Isn't that just what Earl was just talking about? You know, how, how much we are transformed by experiences when we think we're going in there to help somebody else. But <laughs> I love that. 
Earl, it has been an absolute delight having you on the show. I hope lots of people look you up at elcocoloco.com, wavesofhope.org. Find out about this. Tell your friends about it. And uh, let's continue to feed this positive change that's happening on our planet. Let's do it together. So thank Thank you you so much. Thank you, Matt, so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, until next week, this is Beth Green from the Inside Out. Thank you for making us a part of your week. Listen for the next edition of Inside Out, The Inner Revolution, with Beth Green and James Maynard, next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think outside the box and have a great week. Thank you.